Welcome to The Paradigm Concept, hosted by myself, Dr. David Rollis, CEO of Paradigm Oral Health. The Paradigm Concept will feature leaders and innovators in the healthcare industry, in particular dentistry, to help you find new, efficient, and innovative ways to build a world-class practice and deliver better patient care. At Paradigm Oral Health, we're all about shaping the future of our specialty, with a focus on putting the needs of the patient first. Learn more and subscribe today at ParadigmOralHealth.com. Hi, this is David Rollis, CEO of Paradigm Oral Health. I'm joined today by Karin Garg, or otherwise known as KG, who's a good friend and a global leader in healthcare investment banking. Here at Paradigm, we've had the fortune to work with KG on multiple occasions to advise our company and help with capital raises. I've learned a tremendous amount from him, so it, it's been a just a joy to get to know him and, and learn from him. And I've used these discussions to really help me and our audience learn from other people who've had a lot of success in their fields and try to think about how we can translate those into our practices, our businesses, and going forward. So really fortunate to have KG with us today. And KG, I thought we would talk about three buckets, three categories of questions I was thinking that I think you could really help us a lot with. And first, just kind of like to know about your background, what is investment banking, how you became an investment banker, and what's different about healthcare versus other areas of investment banking? And then how do you think about dentistry or how do you become specialized in dentistry? Then the second category was thinking about you get to see a lot of very valuable companies and what have you seen that's contributed to the value of companies for patients and from an investment perspective. And then lastly, just how you think about the future of dentistry. And obviously there's a lot of consolidation going around, particularly in dental specialties and what you see for the future of that. So I'm looking forward to learning more today. So if that sounds like a a reasonable plan, I've got some questions for you. Yeah, that sounds great, David. Thank you for having me participate in this and look forward to the discussion. Well, awesome. Well, first off, just to kind of give everyone some context about how you think about things, maybe if you could just talk to us about your background and how you became an investment banker. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a career investment banker. I started right out of undergraduate. I joined Land Loki's healthcare group as an analyst back in 2004. And more specifically, I got recruited into the healthcare group at the firm. And that wasn't necessarily a choice because coming straight out of undergrad, I really had no idea about what exactly investment banking would be and what I'll be doing on a day-to-day basis and how the progression of the career actually happens. But it was more of a lucky chance that I got recruited into healthcare and loved the sector and the space. And I've been doing healthcare investment banking for over 17 plus years now. Investment banking has a lot of different flavors and services that banks typically provide. But what I'm mostly focused on is providing advice around mergers and acquisitions and capital raisings to corporations, private companies, and private equity firms. Nice. Like you said, investment banking is pretty broad. You hear lots of stories. And as surgery residents, we kind of get put through the ringer a lot. It sounds like there's some correlation there in terms of working your way up and the hours and everything that are put in. Are those stories true or are things really pretty hectic? I think the world has changed quite a bit over the last decade and a half or so. It used to be a lot more grueling because it was to be a lot more manual work. But as technology has advanced across the board, right, and including investment banking, a lot of the manual tasks that I did starting up as an analyst and then an associate, those have become quite automated through the use of technology. Even today, the work is time-consuming, it is strenuous, it is nonstop, but it requires one to be passionate about learning, 
Because one thing that investment banking allows you to do is really experience a lot of different aspects of business in one role. So most people think of investment banking as just a finance job and numbers related. It's actually a combination of sales and marketing and ability to speak, public speaking, obviously ability to advise, critical thinking, ability to sort of convince people. So it is a role which allows you to develop quite a few different skills over the course of your career. When we worked together, I guess our project in raising capital, that was probably about a year that we spent together, maybe a little even longer. I was amazed at just the process that you put on and introducing us to some really great people as we worked towards a partnership with BlackRock. It was interesting that it was not just about you know raising money, it was about understanding our company. And I think it made us a much better, the deep dive that you and your team took into how we operate the business and where we were headed. That was so rewarding. I think it was way more value than just the process of finding a new investor. I'm sure that has to be pretty rewarding for you to help yeah. businesses. That's the passion part. I really enjoy advising CEOs and founders like yourself and helping work with private companies and really uncover the secret sauce and what makes you unique and how to present that uniqueness to somebody who's looking at the business from outside in. That process, going through that sausage making, if you will, over a course of six to nine to a year is what really gives me satisfaction that I've been able to make a change in a lot of people's lives, but also make a change in helping a company grow and reach its potentials to the next level. One of the things I think about a lot sometimes is as a M&A advisor or an S&P banker, I have been spoiled because most of the companies that I'm working with are leaders in their spaces. So I haven't really seen the ones that <laughs> fall or fail, but only seen the ones that actually are successful and doing really, really well. So it kind of gives me a little bit of a skewed view of the world yeah. and makes your job sometimes look like, well, I could potentially do this. And then I think about every day what you're doing and how execution heavy your work is and how much effort you have you put in. And I'm like, it's a tremendous amount of time and effort and energy that goes into building a company. And I can see that. And I've seen that through many different lenses and over the course of my career. As a CEO, I think you spend a lot of your time just communicating and like developing your vision and probably most importantly, expressing it and getting others to believe in it as well and work towards it. It was really fun to refine our vision over time and learn how to express it in the best way. I think it had value way beyond just investment. I think it, there was a lot of executional value to working with you and learning those details and just how to think about the business and how to clearly express those. So that was a lot of fun. How did you get into dentistry? Because I obviously love dentistry and probably most people listening to this do as well, but it's maybe not the most attractive area. It's not like AI or technologies. How did you kind of get into that niche? I would love to say that I had the foresight to pick a sector which was immensely growing and fragmented and had tons of opportunity. And I had that vision a decade or so ago. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not true. Investment banking is a mentorship business. And about 10 years ago this time around, I was working with the gentleman who was my superior, and he and I you know, had done a couple of deals in the dental space, and then he decided to move to another position, another career. And I was kind of left looking around, seeing what exactly I should be doing next. And I took the chance of saying, well, I'm going to grow this dental practice because I've done two deals, so I know everything about, <laughs> about dentistry at that point. 
I was obviously way younger then and had this vision of, okay, I can potentially take this further. And 10 years later and 50 transactions into the dental space and call it 30-ish billion dollars of value transacted, here we are. So luck has been a very important factor in my career over the course of it. And I tend to just step into things which tend to work out. And I wish I could have given you a more intellectual <laughs> answer around this, but that's exactly the truth. So no, I think that's great. That's probably how a lot of people come into these things. And you can probably count the number of people that have done $30 billion in dental transactions on less than one hand, maybe one finger. That's pretty impressive. It is amazing how things work out when, when you kind of have a grand plan and just work really hard towards it. And now you're the leader. So that's quite an accomplishment. Do you focus on other areas of healthcare or yeah, mostly dentistry yeah. or how's your mix? Starting out, there really wasn't a concept of specialty dentistry. Dentistry was just essentially general dentistry. And most of them used to be multi-specialty in nature with very small portion being especially dental focused business and the rest used to be general dentistry. But over time and more so over the last call it five, six years, it has become very apparent that dentistry, a $150 billion market cannot be generalized as one single type of business model. This is definitely in response to what the market is demanding. And when I say market, it's patients, it's the providers, the doctors, as well as the payers. Like, what are they really looking for? They're looking for a better patient, better experience. They're looking for a better work environment, and operationally geared towards them. And then the payers are looking for better outcomes and better cost containment. And that's why you've seen the birth of specialty dentistry platforms like Paradigm and others that are focused either specifically on oral surgery or endodontics or orthodontics, etc. Other than dentistry, which are now sort of divided into multiple different categories, including general dentistry and ortho and oral surgery and endo and others. I also focused on dental labs. That's an area that I've covered over a number of years and done a fair number of transactions in that space. And then beyond that, I focused on broader sort of physician practice management platforms in subsectors like orthopedics, GI, cardiology, anesthesiology, et cetera. You talked about how you'd sort of fallen upon dentistry. And I think it's such a fortunate area to happen upon. And I probably accidentally came upon dentistry as well. My grandfather had a dental laboratory and I grew up working in the lab a bit and never was really that excited about becoming a lab technician at the time, but wasn't really sure what I wanted to do and went to school for initially biomedical engineering and found out that when I had to do coding courses, I was really pretty terrible at that. And then thought, well, I'd go into finance and enjoyed that, but wasn't really sure what I would do with that. And then went out to dinner one night with an orthodontist who was a neighbor and the more he explained what he did and things, I thought this sounds like probably a pretty good job for a number of different reasons. And there was some artistic component to it and some other things I liked. So just decided, why don't I give dentistry another look and ended up going to dental school and not really liking orthodontics after all, but really loving surgery. So that's kind of my story into dentistry. I think it was so fortunate because there's so many opportunities that have existed and there's a lot of variables. Of course, the clinical care is awesome really fun to be a part of, but there's so many different aspects to it and building a business and dentistry is a lot of little small businesses. So I think it attracts people that are maybe a, a little bit more entrepreneurial rather mm -hmm. than going to med school. And then I think there's so many opportunities that because dentistry in some ways is so antiquated relative to medicine, at least in terms of the billions or trillions of dollars that go into it and 
biotech and all of these things that you don't really see as much in dentistry. But I think it also creates a lot of opportunity because you can be a bit more innovative. And maybe if you're using resources more wisely, you can get a little further ahead. Or if you adopt ideas or strategies that they're expanding on other medical concepts, you might be able to get a little further ahead. The area that I really like is that you really have to deliver value in dentistry. When you go to the emergency room or maybe go to your primary care doctor, you don't really think about how it's getting paid. It's just sort of an expectation that somehow it's going to get paid. Maybe not for everybody, but for a lot of people, the cost doesn't get thought about quite as much as when you go to the dentist and find out that you need to have a crown or you need to have a tooth taken out. And you have to really kind of decide, is it worth it? Because you're probably going to have to pay for that or at least a large part of it. So I think those dynamics really play into how you develop a great business in dentistry. People have to really value the money they're giving you for the care that you're going to provide them. How do you think about that as dentistry relates to medicine? As you know, you know there are other folks in the market today, some large organizations that are thinking about creating a continuum between medicine and oral health, overall health and oral health. That piece aside, I think, at least in the United States, Healthcare, as you just mentioned, is a function of reimbursement by a third party for the most part, at least on the medicine side. That leads to a lot of complexity in the overall sort of business model in terms of what care you're providing and how that care that is being delivered is being measured relative to the dollars that are being spent to provide that care. If you've seen some of the recent news or laws that have been passed around No Surprises Act and trying to curb supplies billing from third parties, et cetera, to make sure that the delivery of care as well as the service that is being provided is in line with the cost that has been incurred to do that. In dentistry, that's different because even though there is Medicaid insurance for children and for adults in certain states, it's not very comprehensive. The third party or commercial insurance is essentially a use it or lose it proposition and has a cap on how much you can spend any given year. So it really is patient choice at the end of the day, which is driving dentistry. And what that requires is, as I mentioned previously, the patient experience has to be top-notch. And obviously over the course of last decade and plus with social media and Yelp and Google reviews and all those kind of things, everybody is focused on getting those, making sure that the reviews and the patient experience has been top-notch. And that's what's going to drive the contenders in the landscape of dentistry versus the pretenders who are going to lag. And then secondly, I think as things get more more and more competitive, use of technology, whether it's on the revenue cycle management side, which is very, very important because, as you know, those systems and processes and even the IT platforms in dentistry today are quite behind relative to other spaces. So revenue cycle management, use of artificial intelligence to make clinical decisions And the last bit I would say is probably the most important is education and training, both for the clinical staff as well as the non-clinical staff in treatment coordination and planning and scheduling, et cetera. Things are more advanced in medicine because obviously it's a much larger portion of the overall healthcare pie. But everything that I mentioned today is an opportunity to perfect the business model in dentistry and really sort of grow at a faster pace than the overall market. I feel like there might be opportunities how companies interface or collaborate with payers in dentistry because it is so simple relative to the health insurance sector. And, you know, I think the things that are being done in medicine with value-based care, they're so interesting and it's the kind of alignment you'd like to have. Easier said than done, for sure. 
But I often think about that with dentistry, and I don't think it can be accomplished in the same ways. But I, I like the idea of aligning payers and providers because I don't think it needs to be like this adverse relationship. I think we need to figure out ways that we can work together that if we can do a better job and deliver better care to patients and maybe save the system money in the process, the people that want to really be relentless and put in the work to figure out how to do that and how to make durable treatment like dental implants that are likely to last a lifetime versus work that's going to have to be redone and redone and maybe not super satisfying. There's areas where there could be cooperation. I don't think I'm smart enough to figure those out, but do you have any any thoughts on that, that area sort of value-based care in dentistry? It is happening. And maybe it requires some vertical integration. Uh, one example that comes to mind is DentaQuest, which is a large managed Medicaid payer, which manages the Medicaid plan for a number of states, number of enrollees. They did this one pilot program in the state of Oregon where they got the contract to manage Medicaid for the state of Oregon. But in order to do a better job of it, they vertically integrated and acquired a bunch of dental offices to deliver care directly. And essentially, the state of Oregon was paying DentaQuest on a per-member-per-month basis, which essentially is another way of cutting the sort of the value-based care piece. And they were measured based on outcomes. They were measured based on patient experience. They were measured based on utilization. They were measured based on reducing downstream health-related costs. For example, they, they treated a lot of kids. So looking at sort of absenteeism in school because of oral health issues, or reduction in carries, et cetera. There are things like that being done. Another example I can give where in the environment, for example, like a Kaiser Permanente that manages has a captive of captive population of patients or enrollees, I think that would be a perfect candidate to have somebody who can get into dentistry and do it on a value-based care basis. Moving on to how to build value in a dental business. You obviously get to see a lot of different companies and I guess there's a selection bias. If people are talking with you, they've probably had some success or at least not failed. So what have you found has been most important in contributing to tangible and intangible value of the businesses you've seen? You can break the success down and kind of benchmark different metrics, whether it's organic growth, whether it's margin profile, whether it's turnover rate in your provider or doctor base, whether it's retention of your patient base. But at the end of the day, the business of dentistry is a people business and it's very execution heavy. For me, if there's one correlation between success of a company, however you measure that, in my particular instance, it would be growth and profitability of the enterprise. It really comes down to sort of the management team and the infrastructure and the investments that have been made into the infrastructure and the people that really, really drive drive the business and separate from others. There are no shortcuts around this. I've seen a lot of stories where people grow too fast, too quickly, because the opportunity is right in front of you and you can execute on the M&A strategy. And all of a sudden you find yourself that you're trying to build the plane as you're flying it. And that can be tricky. It's not that it's not been done, but it's becoming harder and harder to do, and especially in instances where people are growing at a very, very rapid pace because of the fragmentation that exists in the market. So building the business the right way, putting the right people in the right spots, giving them the right training, and providing them the right tools, technology, and otherwise, such that when you are growing and you are taking those strides, you're able to digest that growth in a very, very systematic and methodical manner. Given the fact that it's not a software business, so it's not like you've created once 
and you can resell it time and time again. You have to continue to deliver care and execute all the way from the front desk, from people who are picking up the phones, to the doctors who are actually providing service, to the nurses who are actually taking care of the post-op, etc. Everybody has to bring their A-game every single day. Standardizing systems and processes and making sure that there's a consistent culture of that being followed becomes paramount to be able to replicate your success. I've found that you can have exceptional practices, exceptional delivery of care in a variety of settings, but a small boutique practice, oftentimes they can become exceptional at that. It's a small group of people, they know each other well, they can kind of do things the same way, complement each other nicely. But oftentimes they don't have some of the resources of a larger organization or some of the levels of professionalization as it relates to maybe compliance and regulatory matters or using technology or, you know, having cloud infrastructure. So there's kind of advantages to both sides of it. I think the magic is sort of like at that intersection. If you can manage to take that boutique bespoke care and blend it with a more commercialized Mm -hmm. approach or scalable approach. To me, that is very difficult. I mean, that's like my life's work at this point. I, I absolutely love it, but it's such a blend of art and science. And then I noticed this trend that a lot of people in this question or comment, this may be a conflict of interest for you because mergers and acquisitions are clearly a good thing for your business. But it does seem like a lot of people in dentistry seem to think that M&A is a business. And to me, it's not a business at all. That seems to be the entire focus for a lot of companies' existence is to roll up small practices. And I just don't think that's doing a service to patients or providers or team members. Maybe there's a financially engineered outcome at some point where someone makes a modest amount of money through it. But I don't think you do anything revolutionary. And I don't know that you're doing like a whole lot of good for society and, and those types of efforts. I mean, I love mergers and acquisitions. It's allowed us to partner with spectacular people and learn from one another so that we can all kind of become better in a boutique way, but at scale. What are your thoughts about mergers and acquisitions yeah. in a roll-up environment? I would say up until last year, maybe June of 2022, we had a unprecedented 12-year run where the interest rates were historically low and availability of leverage and debt to finance acquisitions was incredibly high and available. And the requirements or the covenants to attain that leverage was fairly relaxed. That obviously has changed over the last year or so as due to COVID and, and things of that nature, there was a ton of money that was put into the system by the government, which obviously has resulted in inflation, which has now resulted in rising interest rates. So those acquisitions that used to look cheap are no longer cheap because you're paying 10% interest on debt. And that obviously has put a little bit of a wrench in companies that are not well capitalized or companies that don't deliver organic growth to be able to pursue acquisitions at the pace at which they were doing previously. So what has come to the surface and investors across the board have private equity and otherwise become acutely focused and aware about making sure that if you're an M&A focused growth company, what you do with that acquired entity or affiliated entity after you've completed the acquisition is become very, very important. Racking and stacking profitability or EBITDA has become a absolute no-no. 
if you're not able to demonstrate your ability to integrate practices and add value to those practices such that they're growing at a pace higher than what they've been doing historically, then there's a crack in your value proposition strategy. As you said, there are players out there because it's a large market that consider M&A their business model. M&A is not a business model. It's not a business, especially not if you're an operator operated in the medical field or the, or the dental field. It's one leg of the stool, one growth strategy that you can pursue. But what is truly important is delivering value via organic growth, especially in this environment where interest rates and the availability of debt is constrained. I think it's an exciting time, although perhaps a bit more difficult with higher interest rates, but I think it's an exciting time to differentiate yourself because it's just going to be a lot more challenging for people to grow their businesses that are dependent on inorganic growth. So I think you probably have the opportunity to separate yourself further if your focus really is on a long-term approach. To that point, so if you think about every time in every subsector, whether it's dentistry, whether it's urgent care, whether it's physical therapy, whether it's vet, you name it. If you have a de novo strategy and an organic growth strategy, which is driving alongside the M&A strategy, your business is that much more valuable in the eyes of the investor, simply because A, it delivers higher growth. It kind of shows not a lot of people are doing de novos because they're hard to do and hard to perfect. It allows you to grow in a controlled manner. And at the same time, you have the full view of the culture, the infrastructure, the people across the board from get-go. And you can mold it in the way you want to so that you can actually scale and replicate that success that you've had previously. Having not operated a scaled business during times of rapidly rising interest rates, looking back historically, what has happened in these times and in this environment, I guess, of mergers and acquisitions and companies? I think the pace of acquisitions will slow down and people will be a lot more picky about what they're acquiring. They will have to make sure that the strategic fit for the add-on acquisitions that they're doing is really played out well, and they have a view in terms of the ability to grow that post-acquisition. And you're seeing that happen in the market today. There are a number of platforms that have taken a pause to digest what they've acquired over the last year or so to make sure that there's no execution risk around those acquisitions and they're not piling problem on top of problem. For folks who are well-capitalized, who built the business the right way from get-go and have plenty of room to grow from a capital perspective, they're going to monetize in this opportunity of some players not playing for a little period of time and allowing the others to sort of take advantage of that. I imagine it could be a hard transition for some companies. How we've built Paradigm since the start, I guess, from essentially 2010 to today, it had been very focused on it's all of my partner's life's work. It's our legacy. What is it going to look like in 30 years? So I haven't really thought about five-year intervals. It's worked out well, I think, at each five-year interval, but thought about it from a very long-term perspective. So I've always thought of, like I said, we've been able to merge with a lot of great practices that it has definitely made our company much, much stronger. But I've always thought of acquisitive growth as a bit of cheating. I've been really focused on our organic growth. That's kind of the scoreboard that I pay a lot of attention to. And we were just sort of fortunate to come along some nice merger and acquisition opportunities. But at our onset, it kind of wasn't our core business. But I imagine if your core business or a significant amount of your growth has been through acquisition, 
and your focus was not on organic growth or product development, things like that, it probably could be a difficult transition for some businesses to suddenly have to direct that focus in an environment where interest rates are high. And then you couple on top of that, okay, now I'm going to start focusing on organic growth and really delivering exceptional experiences. And then you find yourself in an inflationary environment and a recession looming that probably sets up for a pretty scary picture for some people, I suppose. You're not going to see M&A completely go away. It is a very important growth strategy. I think one thing you mentioned in your comment here, David, was around you and your partner's life work. That is an extremely important component of M&A in this environment today. The alignment with the partners that you're bringing on to the platform Mm -hmm. and their view of what they want to achieve through this partnership. If it's really about liquidity and not about continued growth and ability to change and improve, I think those types of M&A opportunities will either get hung or will be done at values lower than what you have seen Mm -hmm. historically. And that's another piece of the pie, right? So if you're, as I mentioned, like, your ability to grow the acquisition after you've done the transaction is very, very important. And in order to grow, you have to figure out what exactly is missing from this new partnership that you've developed, whether it's on the marketing side, whether it's on the physical plant side, whether it's on training, whether it's on staffing, whether it's, hey, we need to do a better job on the back office and the revenue cycle front. All these things require change. And if your partner is not open to change, you're not going to be able to effectuate growth leading to it. So that's become a very, very important part of the equation as well. And then alignment on the operational side, being open to change, but also from the economic side in terms of having real meaningful skin in the game and a vision towards the future, not five years or 10 years, but a longer future going forward. Well, I've definitely seen time and time again that the people that have the ability to work with other people just tend to be more successful in life. We are still definitely very focused on finding practices that are the right fit to merge with. And I think we've been pretty disciplined, managed to find the practice. We have codified what it is that we're looking for. And I don't think we've kind of swung and missed yet in terms of having a practice join us and and not go well. But we've been pretty disciplined in what we say yes to and what just isn't the right fit. So in this environment, I think having that approach or having developed that approach over the past five years is really kind of paying dividends now and that we can kind of identify the practices that we know will work in our system really nicely. And I think working with you this past year kind of further helped solidify how we think about that. So fortunate to have your help with that. Obviously, you get to see a lot of business leaders and CEOs difference executives. What are the characteristics that you've found common to leaders that have built great companies? Obviously, having a true vision and a sense for clarity around that vision and not getting distracted by too many outside events. So a simple thing would be like, you have to be very focused on what you're trying to build and then walk or run or jog towards that goal. And while you're doing that, if you start responding to every single opportunity that is coming your way, which may take you away from your core strategy, I think that eventually ends up in a bad place because you end up having a platform or a company which is going in too many different directions. The second thing I would mention that for successful CEOs that I've seen is delegation. You're trying to build a scaled enterprise that can run at a much larger scale 
and footing over years. So being able to find the right people and delegating the responsibilities and giving responsibilities and holding people accountable for those particular responsibilities is a very big proponent. Because if you could get 15 Davids in paradigm, I'm sure you would love to get 15 Davids, but they are 15 Davids. And David himself cannot do a job for 15 people, (laughs) all 15 people. So you have to really have the abilities. I've seen a ton of CEOs who just want to do everything because they just don't like giving up control. Honestly, people see through that and that becomes almost like a key man risk. You want to build an organization that can stand on its own and your job is as a CEO is to run strategy and form the vision and you know really bring the resources for your team to be able to capitalize and monetize on all the growth opportunity that you have in front of you. And the last one I would say is being coachable and being open to suggestions and open to criticism and open to you know change. And a lot of people resist that because it's the fear of the unknown. And a lot of people resist that sometimes because of, hey, I'm the CEO, I'm the founder, I know best, this is my company. As you do it with the partners that you're affiliating or partnering with, to bring them on board, to tell them how you can improve the business. If they don't listen, you probably don't want to partner with them because it's going to be a difficult transition. The same way, I think investors and even sort of your own staff and employees and people that your colleagues that you work with really look forward to somebody who's open to change, open to suggestion and comments, and then is coachable around learning to improve on an ongoing basis. So I would say those are probably the three things I would mention as true differentiators in a leader who's really looking to build a world-class organization versus somebody who's just trying to get to the next step. I'm not sure that Paradigm could endure 15 Davids. That might be, <laughs> that might be a bit much. <laughs> but, but the one thing that I do well, I think, is manage to find people that are more talented. And I found about 150 surgeons that, that were definitely an upgrade for me. I managed to do that in life through marriage and, and, and now in business. So I think that's great advice. When you talked about being coachable, working with you, I love the way you coach. It's very direct. Some people could almost even think it's so succinct ordering on abrasive, but not just like the, <laughs> the perfect mix of like charisma and directness. And it's like, I take it like, oh yeah, geez, I better not do that. I better listen to it. I think he's right. So I, I appreciated that a lot. Just kind of moving on towards the future. Obviously there's been a lot of technology introduced in dentistry, digital workflows, a lot of things around implants and a lot of business automation. And that's kind of where I see a tremendous opportunity in the future. What types of things do you think dental business should think about investing in in terms of technology moving forward? I think you kind of covered it. Like the digital workflow is something that most people, I think only 25% of impressions today are passing through a digital scanner. So that there's a lot, ton of opportunities still remaining in that particular arena. Beyond that, I would say that, in, especially in environment like today, where interest rates are high, wages are high, there are staff shortages. So anything that can improve operational efficiency and reduce sort of the staff time to achieve the same results. So whether it's on the revenue cycle management side, it's on the call center side, I think scheduling is one area. And I know you guys, Paradigm, have a very robust scheduling platform that you guys use to manage time for the doctors as well as the rest of the staff. I think scheduling is one area, especially in general dentistry, where you're doing so many different procedures. It's not a limited number of procedures that you're doing. You're doing a crown in one time, you're doing a cleaning on the other side, is a hygiene appointment. So requiring 
a more sophisticated scheduling tool can really help squeeze more productivity out of the given day. I mentioned previously as well, and I keep harping on it, especially in the context of M&A and consolidation and the fact that you're acquiring practices with different types of operating systems and IT platforms and practice management systems, et cetera, the revenue cycle management piece is critical because there are literally dollars and cents being left on the table because there weren't systemized processed and standard processes put in place to be able to go after those last $2 or $3 or 2% or 3% of your revenue, which meaningfully drops to the bottom line and can be the change, the extra boost that you're looking from a growth perspective. What you just said has exactly been my thoughts and experiences over the past few years. And I think there's tremendous opportunity to really network your organization around common operating systems and cloud infrastructure and being connected and being able to communicate and measure data and adapt to it. So those are, I agree, all key areas. Other couple of things that I'd mention or focus on is, one is some companies do this better than others, but especially with the growth in the specialty dental platform arena where everybody is a oral surgeon or an endodontist or a or orthodontists working together, there needs to be a lot more internal communication of sharing of best practices on the clinical side and also on the non-clinical side. So developing a platform that allows you to do that on a real-time basis so that you can be better. Obviously, I'm not a clinician, so this example may be completely flawed, but I've got KG is sitting in my chair and I'm diagnosing his condition, his mouth's condition, and I see something and I'm not entirely sure about it. Is there a way for me to consult the person I think would be the best person for this kind of uh, issue and get feedback on a real-time basis. I think that could improve, obviously, patient turnaround time, but also, you know, the overall patient experience of them coming back twice or thrice, as opposed to, you know, getting it done the same day. I haven't seen a platform that allows you to do that effectively on a real-time basis, but that seemed like an opportunity missed especially if you are working in an environment where everybody is a same kind of physician and has seen hundreds and hundreds and thousands of cases. That's been one of the most satisfying things about Paradigm is being able to share cases amongst many, many surgeons and get their real-time feedback in terms of what they would do and people that have learned from great outcomes or complications. And I totally agree with that. My vision, our goal is to provide the best patient outcomes and to be able to measure it. And if we're not adapt to it, we're publishing some studies in the near term and we hope to continue to do more and, and more on that. We also want to have the highest net promoter score. This year, we've stayed consistently above 90%. I think we're about 91% year to date. We also want to have the highest staff engagement scores. We completed our third annual comprehensive staff engagement survey of the entire organization. And I think we, for the third straight year, increase in nearly every category. So we feel like we're on a really good path, but a lot more work to do. My secret ambition is to hopefully one day be the largest company in dentistry if we can manage to satisfy the first three things first. I'd love to be the Mayo Clinic of dentistry, so to speak, or specialty yeah. dentistry or oral surgery. I mean, it's just a vague goal that, of course, I'll never accomplish, but would love to do that. I guess, lastly, what do you see for the future of dental specialties consolidation? What should we really be focused on? What's going to happen in the next one to five years, 10 years? And what should Paradigm be focused on specifically to achieve those goals in that environment? 
the market is still, there are different numbers that come out all over the place. Oral surgery is less than 10% consolidated. Orthodontics is less than 10% consolidated. General dentistry is sort of in the mid-20% consolidated. So there's still a fair amount of runway left to continue to grow. And if I recall, David, you had identified call it 250-ish or so markets that are of interest to you and Paradigm. I think that in itself would give you a pretty good roadmap if you were to to establish and build 250 markets in the U.S. I mean, that would create a monster of a business. But near term, I see, as I said, it'll be a little bit of a slowdown in add-on acquisition. The overall M&A environment generally in healthcare and generally macro speaking is down from last year which is not surprising, but deals are still getting done. I think we talked about it. I recently advised on the sale of Lightwave Dental to Lindsay Goldberg. We closed that deal end of June. Nice size transaction, great partnership with the new fund. There's still lots of opportunities out there and lots of platforms that are looking to get recapitalized. So we'll see some activity continuing on in the next 12 to 24 months. And as some of this from a recession perspective, I feel like it's going to be a short-lived recession and not a deep one. And coming out of that, I think you'll see a ton of activity, both on the add-on acquisition side as well as on the general M&A side, as the easing kind of sort of happens on the interest rate side basis as well. The other thing I've seen, and more and more of this is happening, we do these transactions last year as consolidation of consolidators. There's a tons of synergies that can be realized because of the infrastructure that some of these businesses have built, which can be rationalized. And, and, and it makes cultural, it makes strategic sense for these businesses to come together and complement each other. So one of them was deal actually up in Canada. We combined the second and the third largest dental platforms, one, two, three dentists and, and Ultima Dental to form a very large and the second largest platform in, uh, in, in, in the Canadian market. And then the other one was Western Dental acquired Mid-Atlantic Dental, which is another consolidation of consolidators. So I think we'll continue to see more and more of these. And I think some of them will be less so liquidity focused in terms of cashing out one party or the other. It'll be more a sense of merger of equals in some ways mm-hmm. to realize those synergies and be able to capitalize on the market growth and go to market together. So I think we'll, we'll continue to see those. And the last, and then I've been hoping for something like this to happen in this particular market. I, mean, I don't know another $150 billion market that, that, that does not have a public company. When the stars align and there are some really sizable companies in the dental space today, which could be very good candidates to go public. I think the market deserves a benchmark like that so that they can continue down the evolution of the overall market landscape. Well, thank you, KG. That's great advice. I really appreciate it. I feel so grateful to have worked with you and continue to work with you. And for anyone listening, I would highly recommend KG to advise you on any M&A needs you might have. I just can't thank you enough for your time and you should do this again sometime. Yeah, my pleasure. This was a lot of fun, David, and I obviously enjoyed working with you and enjoy continue working with you. And absolutely, this has been great. Thank you again for having me. Well, thanks, KG. We'll do it again. Yeah, cheers. Take care. You've been listening to The Paradigm Concept, brought to you by Paradigm Oral Health, an organization led and owned by surgeons passionate about shaping the future of our specialty and ensuring the needs of the patient come first. Learn more and subscribe to the show at ParadigmHealth.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on The Paradigm Concept. Thank you.